everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime, anywhere, right here on The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. This podcast strives to bring to you the top medical specialist right at your fingertips. Please note, though, that this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as personal medical advice. For that, please consult with your trusted healthcare provider. Today, I'm really excited to have a discussion with a talented medical journalist and emergency room physician, Dr. Helen Uyang. You know, writers, especially physician writers, have a very special place in my heart. And I just want to take a moment to explain before we bring on Dr. Uyang. Back in my college days at Brown University, I remember quite vividly in my freshman year taking the introductory chemistry course. Now, the class was widely known on campuses, what they call, quote, the weed out course, where wannabe future doctors, because of the difficulty of the material and the harsh grading of the exams, they would either go on to become doctors or find another career. And I'll never forget the building where it took place was called Metcalf Hall. And it was probably a hundred years old when I was when I was there. And the building looked like something out of a Harry Potter movie. It was old. It was dingy. The air just had this sulfurous smell, which I'll explain in a second. But also there was this mystique of brilliant students from the past and of the future. And in fact, probably sitting down the row from me in that class was a future Nobel Prize winner, Craig Mello, who won the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 2006. So yeah, he was a classmate. Um, and just so if you didn't know, when I talk about sulfurous gases, you know, that it's a horrible smell. It smells like rotten eggs. So, you know, all in all, you know, that freshman chemistry course was really quite intimidating. And I really questioned whether or not I had the fortitude to become a doctor. But fortunately, my dad had actually purchased a subscription to the New Yorker magazine, which still is and at that time was famous for its cartoons and excellent essays, which I used to look forward to on Friday afternoons when I'd go to my mailbox. And one of the writers for that in the New Yorker magazine at the time was Bruton Rocher, and he had a column called The Medical Detectives. And I would read these fascinating stories, how doctors made these really interesting diagnosis, either on an individual patient or in cases of uh, health outbreaks. You know, one of my favorite stories was titled Eight Blue Men. And it was about how the New York City Health Department was able to trace how eight men turned blue from eating oatmeal um, at different diners throughout the city. And it was found out that someone who had supplied the oatmeal had actually mistook um, sodium nitrite, which is actually a poisonous powder for table salt. And all these guys were turning up in emergency rooms blue. And again, the, these medical detectives figured it out and were able to treat them to reverse them. Anyway, all this writing made me yearn to be one of the tribe of physicians doing this kind of Sherlock Holmes detective work. So ever since I've been a huge fan of medical writers, especially those that actually practice medicine on the front lines that witness firsthand the pain and suffering of patients and the difficult decisions made in patient care on a daily basis. And a few examples just, you know, who are really well known are like Atul Gawande and Jerome Groupman, who both used to write quite frequently for the New Yorker, but not as much anymore. And Lisa Sanders, the wonderful doctor who pens the column 
diagnosis in the New York Times Magazine. I've been fortunate. I've had her in the podcast in the past. So Dr. Helen Uyang is part of this special tribe. She is an associate professor and emergency room physician at New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell Medical Center. She's also a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine. That's how I found out about her. And she has written numerous other articles for popular magazines. So I'm always pleased to introduce another Brown alumnus who has made the school proud. And it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Helen Uyang to the podcast. Thank you, Dean, for having me on the show. Okay. Um, so I always like to ask my guests how they chose their specialty or field of medicine. So how did you end up in uh, ER medicine? <laughs> you want the short story or the long story? Well, whichever story you like. <laughs> I, you saw my, I had a quite a long introduction, so I, my, my listeners are prepared to, uh, I hope they're on a long drive somewhere. <laughs> well, I was actually taking a writing class in junior high and we read a story by Richard Seltzer. I don't know if you know who he is. He is I've a name. Yeah. But what kind of, yeah, go ahead. He's a Yale surgeon who right, wrote. Right. Who's, wasn't he with Bernie Siegel? I think he was the partner with Bernie Siegel, the holistic Yale surgeon. Anyway, so I've heard of him though. <laughs> Sorry. So we read one of his stories and mm. he went and worked in Honduras and it was a wonderful, beautifully told story. And I didn't realize later that a lot of his work was actually fiction, but I oh. think he just sort of struck a chord in me. In my seventh grade self, I heard, read his story and I really wanted to work overseas. I wanted to have access to people's lives, learn about them, see how they were living. And it seemed like maybe I had to become a doctor to do that. <laughs> I didn't okay. know too much about medicine. I didn't come from a family of doctors. I'm the first one in the family. But once I heard that story, I, I sort of got this idea that I really wanted to work overseas. And as you probably know, emergency medicine with its shift work and right. sort of make things up as you go along sort right. of approach is very conducive to that. That's interesting. You know, it's interesting how sometimes reading something inspires you. Like, as I said, I was saying in the introduction, it, I, I kind of, I kind of always wanted to be that, that medical detective. I just kind of wasn't the surgical type. And I did, I was like, to me, it was a little boring being in the OR for hours. I did always love emergency medicine. We'll talk about that because obviously I got training when I did my internal medicine residency. Um, but let me ask you then also too, I saw, I think you are a BA from Brown, like I was, you know, <laughs> so where, what, what did you major in and, and how did you end up having this urge to become a writer? Cause that also takes obviously a certain skill set, you know, especially being a published writer. Yeah. Thanks for bringing up those memories of Metcalf Hall. <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering, cause you're much younger than me. Cause I know they got this fancy geochem building. What I heard the last, I don't know, when I was leaving Brown, they were working on it. And I just was wondering if they just destroyed Metcalf or if they still made all the <laughs> pre-med students kind of go through there just to get a taste of, uh, of what it could be like. I think a little bit of both. Right. Um, okay. <laughs> um, I majored in international development studies. Okay. Um, again, with this interest of working overseas. And I was sort of lightly pre-med. I took I took the bare minimum. I wasn't sure I was definitely going to go into medicine for sure or find some other ways to work abroad. Okay. So it's, did you actually, do you, I know so many students at Brown went abroad during their, you know, they would take a semester abroad. I, I just found I could never do it. I was always like <laughs> trying to catch up on all my studies, but uh, were you able to do that for a semester, go overseas? <laughs> I agree with you, Dean. I, I didn't manage to find no. time during the yeah. academic year, but during the summers. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I, I always say, be careful what you wish for. I was so jealous of a lot of my uh, colleagues and friends, you know, who are taking a semester abroad in Italy and this and that too. And then I, <laughs> I ended up going to medical school in Israel. So I got my, uh, my time overseas, which was really actually quite amazing, but that's another story. <laughs> um, out of curiosity, and I know what ER doctors ships can be like, what is your schedule like? And, you know, and again, how do you find time to write, you know, after putting in probably eight, 10 hour emergency room shifts? Well, I think in some ways, emergency medicine is more conducive to writing because when the shift is over and you go home, you know, you don't get called by patients sure. or the clinic. So I think you are able to carve out some time when you're not working. And then I think just being in an emergency room, you're seeing so many yeah, it's amazing complex, stories. yeah, the human stories that yeah. um, really inspire me. Do you take notes, like, like just like to yourself, like in a little, you know, little memo pad, like, oh my God, this is, an, or you just remember afterwards and you write some notes down about the case? <laughs> I actually don't. Maybe I should, but I, I sort uh -huh. of have this soft rule, I would say, that I try not to write about my patients, um, at least not very much just because i kind of want to keep the line i get sort it. Of clear mm -hmm. for for them and for me yeah you know i know because in talking to lisa sanders and um and i know actually talking to uh, jerome groupman actually one time years ago you know there's so much preparation that goes into these published uh articles i mean even like with lisa you know aside from you know just obviously getting the story from a physician she ends up sometimes talk that gets permission talks to the patients and I mean, it's really quite involved. And that's why I guess the stories are so good. I mean, you just, you feel like you have a front row seat. I saw the other thing too, which was really interesting. And I think this probably dovetails to all of your interests. Like you have a master's in public health from the T.H. Chan School of Public Health at Harvard. So after all of that training, <laughs> what made you want to get more, uh, more degrees? Yeah, like I said, I was really interested in international health, um, specifically working in humanitarian crises, post-conflict, post-disaster. So um, that's why I got a master of public health at Harvard. And I did overseas work for a long time. And I was oh, really? uh, helped direct the emergency medicine, international emergency medicine fellowship at Columbia here oh, for wow. a long time. Mm. Yeah, Columbia is a great place. I love, I've done some training there. Okay, let's first talk. We're going to talk about this is sort of like two divisions of the podcast. I want to first talk about your ER work, and then we're going to talk about your writing. What's it like working week after week in a busy ER, like at New York Presbyterian? I mean, it's funny because again, flashing back to my residency training, I, you know, I would do a few months of working in the ER. And I just remember, I mean, it's not like anything else. It's not like working in my private office or working in a clinic or even working on the like internal medicine floor. I mean, the ER is where the action is. So I just out of curiosity, do you get a little bit of anxious before your shift starts or do you have a routine? I mean, how, you know, because everything's coming through those doors, cardiac arrest, bleeding ulcers. You know, how do you uh, how do you prepare yourself? Yeah, you're right, Dan. Everything's coming through those doors. But as I often say to the residents, sometimes the cardiac arrest, the very septic patients, those patients are in a way easy. I mean, we know what to do for them. Okay. We do everything. Um and it's pretty straightforward. I think the people that I struggle with are when you don't know what's going on. I mean, you mentioned diagnosing and figuring out what people have. Um, so when you don't know what's going on, whether it's safe to send them home. And then a lot of the social 
issues. Um, You know, I see a lot of patients who don't have insurance, don't have primary care doctors who recently arrived in the country. um, And those are the hardest for us to address. And I feel helpless a lot of the times. Interesting. My next question was going to be, what do you think the public doesn't understand about emergency room care? And also, I mean, I I have conversations with people all the time about this, about the difference between going to a a tertiary tertiary care hospital like New York Presbyterian versus a community hospital. And a lot of times community hospitals are excellent for certain things, but for other things, you really need a, a place like Columbia Presbyterian, New York Presbyterian that has, I mean, specialists on call from every every field and, you know, that again, in a really serious situation. Um, so I don't know, what, what do you, what do you think is a little bit misunderstood or maybe the better word is, you know, the, the misuse of the emergency room? I mean, I think a lot of people come in for symptoms that they've had for months, oftentimes years. And we, <laughs> We're not always the best place to right. solve those issues. And they end up waiting a long time. And I think it ends up being a pretty frustrating experience for them. So I think I wish people sort of understood what the emergency room is for. That said, there are a lot of people without insurance, without access, who yeah, don't well, right. know that, how to enter the health system at all. Okay. So for people that do have insurance, because you bring up a good point. And you know, look, honestly, too, most people are quite afraid of going to the emergency room. That's like, you know, even doctors, if we're sick, we're like, don't take me to the emergency room. Not that the care isn't great, it can be, but it's just, you know, it's gonna be a lot of invasive things, blood taking, monitoring, you know, not exactly like being in the comfort of your own home. So what would you say, you know, a person's, I don't know, sick at home, having abdominal pain, you know, whatever, is that, is there any, sort of threshold, and I know this is kind of a hard question, but that where someone should say, okay, I really should go to the emergency room. Yeah, I mean, I think it feels totally different, totally new, something you've never experienced before, and you maybe make an attempt to get in touch with your primary care doctor if you have one, and you're not able to reach that person, then that might be a good reason to go to emergency room. Um, recently, we started our virtual urgent care program, so that's mm-hmm. telehealth. And yes. Mm-hmm. I get a lot of patients who call in with exactly what you just said. They have new pain in their belly. They're not sure what to do. And when I first started, I thought, you know, if I told these patients that they might have to go to the emergency room after speaking with them, that they would get upset at me. But really, they're just grateful that a doctor is validating their decision to do that. That's a great point. You know, I just had a patient who's an OR nurse and she's lovely. I, I really I love helping her. And a few last week, she called up like a last minute appointment, which was done virtually because she uh, lives in Staten Island and my, my practice is in Manhattan. And and uh, she called up, I think, because she wanted to talk to me, but I think she wanted some medicine. But even during the telehealth visit, I could see how much discomfort and distress she was in. And I was like, you know, you have to, you know, and I wasn't in my office in Manhattan that day. I said, this cannot wait. You have to go to at least urgent care, you know, and get evaluated and possibly the emergency room. You know, and I said, I'm going to hound you and follow up with you to make sure you did this because I was that concerned. And it was a strange thing. She was having a lot of, a lot of vomiting, very, you know, a low grade fever. It turned out she had COVID. 
And, uh, you know, so it was a little surprising, the presentation. But again, like you, I think one of the things in our training is that we kind of know when somebody's really sick. And uh, so what you just said before, too, is that even the, the telehealth, the phone is not great. You know, you can't really tell, you know, on the phone how sick somebody is. Um, but this telehealth could be really an amazing thing to help differentiate who shouldn't come to the emergency room, overload the resources and, you know, who really needs to come in. Right. Exactly, Dean. And you can see a lot in a telehealth visit, as you mm-hmm. know. I mean, yeah. you see a lot of their house. Sometimes family right. members are in the background. Right. <laughs> it's like a house call. I yeah. really always tease. I said, you know what? That's another thing. I said, I said, I, you know, again, you know, some of my the medical writers I always love, like William Carlos Williams. You know, he was a poet. Right. And, uh, you know, a lot of things he used to write, you know, a lot of his poems and everything he used to write in between his house calls. And I just kind of I don't know, there's a little some romance about that. You know, the doctor driving around, getting into people's homes. You know, of course, it's like so inefficient. You don't have the resources you need, but telehealth is a little bit like that, right? It's uh, exactly it's like, the, it's like the house call is back, right? So, you know, the other thing too, what I think um, people outside of medicine don't appreciate enough is how important teamwork is in medicine. And I always say, I think medicine's a team sport. I mean, as great as a doctor can be. And I know my own practice, I rely so heavily on my staff. Most of them have been with me 25 years or more. They're like my right hand and my left hand. And they're the ones who know how to really make sure things get set up for the patients. So when they finally get to see me, I can solely focus on them. What do you, we're going to get into something a little deeper because one of the articles you wrote really, uh, really touched me. But working in the ER, would you say that's also like a really critical thing? I mean, just from the nurses to the aides to the people on the phones that, you know, everybody's working together sort of on the same, uh, you know, same schedule. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Dean. And what a testament to you and your practice that you've had the same team members for 10, 20 years. Unfortunately, for us, during the pandemic, we lost huge nursing staff. And it, it does feel like starting over again, because you're working with people that you've never met before. You don't know their skill set, their communication right. style, the whole thing. Do you find it, uh, you know, I always say back in the, I think it was the 90s, there was the TV show ER. And I can remember really <laughs> coming home after a day of work and my wife and I, my wife's a physician also, we met in medical school. I, a Thursday night, I was, I mean, I enjoyed Seinfeld and Cheers and all that stuff too, but like 10 o'clock ER came on and the two of us would be like, riveted to the tv <laughs> and you know it's funny because i i give michael Crichton and some of the other people that are involved with i thought it was fairly quite realistic you know i mean i'm sure there was obviously you know some of it was a little dramatized but um do you feel that way sometimes that like there is just like a war zone <laughs> i actually agree with you dean that i did find er kind of realistic you I did was, right yeah okay. i mean i felt the cases were real just that in between yeah. there would be a lot of yeah, not acute cases mixed in that mm-hmm. you don't see on the show. But yeah. I have to say now I can't watch any medical shows. It's like too much, too yeah, much. Too much, right. I know. I mean, that's what I thought at one point. I said, I can't even believe I'm watching this after a day in the office or two. <laughs> but it, it kind of got my juices flowing. I did miss some of the the hospital interaction. Because I guess it's like when people watch war movies, you know, you it's that vicarious thrill of, uh, you know, what's going on there. Uh, another, but here's like sort of a little bit of a down part of medicine today. And I'm just curious your opinion about this also. 
Electronic medical records, you know, and again, this is something we will get into later in your one of your stories. I feel, and I'm just curious how you feel. I feel that unfortunately, there's a lot of negative versus the positive of these quote EMR records. What, what's your opinion? Yeah, Atul Gawande wrote a wonderful piece in the New Yorker a few years ago about this when oh, his hospital that. was first transitioning to mm-hmm. Epic. Um, I guess I haven't had as tough of a time of with it because I sort of grew up with electronic medical charts, mm-hmm. though um, I will say my first job out of residency, it was paper charts and did okay. pretty fast. But, you know, I, I guess I, I do like the advantage of being able to search patients' records, see their interactions at other hospitals mm-hmm. and sort of get uh, cross-institutional records. That part I do find helpful. Yeah. But I agree. I think as a doctor, I would much rather be by the bedside Mm-hmm. Or teaching residents well, and med students than typing away. Well, yeah, that's what it, it seems like. The doctors get so overwhelmed, you know, having to keep up with the EMR stuff. I'll tell you one other thing too. Again, I, I kind of liked when I was through my training, you know, and th- and there were still paper charts then, so I'm dating myself. But it was really kind of interesting. Like some, you know, look, some of the doctors' writings was indecipherable, so that was pretty much a waste. Um, <laughs> but the people I really admired, you know, there'd be the, especially these doctors, they'd come in with their Mont Blanc fancy pens and they would write these very like, you know, interesting notes, you know, that, you know, their impression, you know, and again, that's how I pictured medicine, you know, where the doctors really had a very thoughtful notes, you know, on their impression. And, you know, you know, today, sometimes when I see EMRs, it reminds me of like looking at the dictionary, you know, everything is so like sterile and, you know, lists and lists of things. And um, so, but I, I think sometimes too, and we're going to get to this later on in one of your stories, it, it also, it, it's a, it's a, it's a time killer for, for doctors, you know, where they just know, Hey, I got to get through some of this charting, you know, <laughs> or the patient won't get their meds or, you know, whatever, there's going to be a problem. Yeah. Great. No, it's, it's definitely true. <laughs> Um, we spend a lot of time at a our computers. Time, yeah. Well, maybe one day it'll be all like voice or something. I mean, I assume that they're working on all that. Um, okay. Now we're going to transition to your writing. So you're going to have to put on a different hat. So <laughs> one of the articles that I saw, you know, which was really unbelievable, was, you know, your diary of an ER during the COVID outbreak. Or and then when I was this one times goes I'm an ER doctor in New York. None of us will ever be the same, and I can imagine that. And I, you know, I again, I people, you know, people that were the anti-vaxxers and you know whatever who didn't think COVID was made up. And I mean, I don't know all the other kind of nonsense. But I know you can't obviously do as much as you did in your writings. But what uh, motivated you to write about this? And what were you hoping that the public would? Um, would understand yeah i as i said earlier i really don't like writing about my patients that much so i was quite resistant to writing about this i had was speaking to my editors at the time about writing about italy because as you know the covid wave hit hit them first so i was talking to some doctors there right and then at one point the editor wrote me you know new york city's time has come you know you have to write this piece and at that point i I think I just felt this really great responsibility to put something in the historical record of what was happening because I knew it would be forgotten or questioned. My memory, you know, would distance itself 
Right. And I, I did feel this really great need to do that. What were you hoping? I mean, it was pretty detailed. What were you hoping in doing this, though, that the readers would um, come away with, you know, that the, the seriousness clearly of them, which people know, people lost friends and family, unfortunately, um, or, and I, and I think the public finally start to realize what heroes, not only doctors, but especially nurses, I mean, nurses right on the front line, you know, really risking their lives, you know, because again, it was so early on, there was just not enough even protective gear. Um, do you think that was also an issue about really trying to get across that, you know, and how stressed the healthcare system was? Yeah, I I think people didn't have front row access unless you were mm-hmm. in the hospital yourself. Right. I mean, a lot of um, a lot of media wasn't getting access to hospitals, and also for me, when I was I had been talking for with the doctors in Italy for several weeks. And even when I heard about what they were going through, I it didn't really hit me that it would happen here to me, to my staff, to the patients. Mm. So, you know, once it came and it surprised me, I'll admit, I felt the need to share that. Yeah. It kind of really came through the back door. Everybody was so worried about what was coming from Asia, not realizing it was coming from the other side of the country, coming coming right through. Um You know, I, I trained during the AIDS epidemic, and I think that forever also influenced my career. Um, I had come out of medical school, actually, I had never even seen an AIDS patient at the time in uh, 1986. And uh, and I started to work at St. Luke's Roosevelt, which was a little bit of the epicenter, you know, New York City was in right. general, but that hospital too, in particular. And I'll never forget walking on the fl- on the medical floors the first day as an intern, and I had 18 patients, and I think 15 of them were HIV/AIDS, very sick. There was, they were dying every week from what's called pneumocystis carinii pneumonia, you know, a very unusual pneumonia, which we didn't have much, um, you know, much experience in treating because it was so rare, and these patients' immune system was so. Uh, devastated already that they just almost had no chance, you know, but it was very interesting through the evolution of my three years of training, how we got better at treating them. And I'm going to make the analogy with COVID and we, how we got better at, you know, later on, obviously the drugs, you know, it started with AZT, but obviously now there's so much better medications. So I, I know you mentioned too, and again, this was in the article, like how difficult it was as doctors possibly having to decide who would get a ventilator and who wouldn't. Was that something that you, would you from maybe the top down, you know, how was that decided? You know, was that, you know, was that through conferences through several doctors? I mean, I'm sure it wasn't one doctor saying, okay, this person deserves it more than the other person. Right. It was, it was always this underlying fear, I think among all of us that it would come to that point. Um, I think we talked about it, on Zoom meetings, I know there was a hospital committee that was working on it. The folks in Italy, they actually came up with a actual strict criteria guideline for people to follow. So I think it was always this fear that was there. But I think for the most part, you know, we were able to get the extra supplies and the extra space. And people, I mean, this struck me really 
so much was that people from other services, all these surgeons who had to stop operating because elective surgeries were put on hold. You know, a lot of them were older, you know, were high, at high risk for getting right. very sick from COVID. And they came right. down and helped us. And well, was like, right. You know, you the know. most, one, probably one of the most famous uh, surgeons at your institution, uh, gosh, I'm blanking on his last name. Um, you know, he's the famous organ transplant doctor. Yes. He got so ill. I mean, he was, I think, intubated for a month or so and had a horrendous course. And I think they were thinking of giving him last rites. And thank God he pulled through. He's the most incredible doctor. I mean, he's the one who does like those 20 hour exactly. surgeries, transplanting all the internal organs and on, on patients that nobody else would even attempt. So, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it doesn't matter because you wore a white coat, you know, didn't make you immune, unfortunately, to uh, this first wave of COVID when there was no vaccines. And, uh, yeah, it was probably really, really fun. Was it hard getting even like the protective gear for your staff at that time too? I mean, because again, that's what you would see on the news a lot. They'd play that up, you know, people are reusing the same surgical masks, which really weren't adequate. It wasn't like on, on TV shows, which I don't watch a lot. The one, uh, Grey's Anatomy, they're walking around in those, looks like those spacesuits with those uh, respirator things yeah. <laughs> in the back. I don't, I don't know. Do they have that at the hospitals? I, I Probably not, right? It was probably I wish. I wish we right? had those. We yeah. didn't have those. But yeah, we were, you know, we're using the masks, especially the N95s, as you know, early on. Mm -hmm. They were so hard to get. Yeah. Well, you know, that points out one other thing, which I really feel so strongly about, and people don't appreciate. And hospitals also have their own pressures. I mean, you know, what's crazy during COVID, what I've read, hospitals lost money. And I said to myself, how could they lose money? They were filled to the gill with all these COVID patients, but they weren't doing those surgical procedures because that was all shut down. They needed the resources that I guess usually brings in a lot of the extra money for the hospital. And I really feel it's almost like farming. It's like hospitals need whatever it is that federal and state funding to be super ready, you know, because as you know, too, there are probably there are times in the emergency room, I remember, and it's just quiet, you know, maybe you see a, only a few patients, even though you have a whole full staff there. And, you know, they're worried, oh, should we cut back on nurses or doctors, you know, this time of day or year. But, you know, this is the kind of things like the military, you have to spend and prepare that any day could be a disaster where we need all hands on deck. But right. that's not necessarily the case, is it? No, I, I think for some reason, I mean, I think maybe it's just human nature. We're mostly dealing with what's in front of us. Mm. Yeah. Now, one of the article that you wrote about, this was very upsetting to me. I can't remember, I must've forgotten about this, but it was in a Washington Post article and you wrote, the trouble with punishing healthcare workers who make mistakes. And this actually reminds me of the book that I wanted to write or have it made into a movie. I was going to call it No Room for Error, how doctors and nurses in the healthcare system are held to unreasonable expectations. I still haven't written it yet. But um, that story is just mind blowing. But that nurse who, like you mentioned in the article, was experienced, um, had some 20 some odd years of experience and, and a great record. And she made a mistake. You know, she was like typing into the computer uh, one type of sedative. I think she was trying to do Versed. I think you right. said it in the article. And it came out something else, which uh, I believe related, caused the death in the patient. Is that correct? Yeah, she she put in the um, both start with mm -hmm. V, and it's a paralytic. 
So the patient was paralyzed, so wasn't breathing on her own. And she mm. went down to get a, a test, a radiology test. So, and she also wasn't properly monitored, I think, during the mm. test. And the patient ended up um, passing. And, and the family apparently initially did not want to pursue anything because they said the patient who died was a forgiving person and wouldn't want mm. the nurse punished. Right. But, you know, they went after criminal charges against her. Well, how do the, you know, I mean, this must touch everybody in the healthcare system. I, I mean, how do, how do your doctors and nurses all deal with this? Do they put it out of their mind? Do they, are they more um, aware of this now? Uh, you know, it's, I mean, cause look, we're, we're all human. And sometimes as we talked about earlier, it's the team, it's the systems. I mean, I'm sure you have had to take, like I do, you have to take all these courses for our malpractice, you know, about, you know, teamwork and, you know, double checking the systems. But, you know, at the bottom line is when you're in a war zone, things happen, you know, and look, even in my own office, I try to be super careful. I, you know, we have a lot of things, you know, ready in case for emergencies, you know, but things can happen. So, um, again, what were you trying to hopefully portray in that article? And, and what, what do you think should, you know, who should, how should doctors and nurses be protected? Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's humans taking care of humans. And unless you want a robot to be your nurse, yeah, unfortunately, inevitably, somewhere, humans will make a mistake. I mean, we want that to be as tiny, tiny, tiny a percentage as possible. But right. unfortunately, you know, it does happen. And when it does happen, you know, you, you really need to examine the system. So in this case, I mean... I don't know, maybe they would have a system where you can never pull a paralytic unless there was an order in the computer for it. It can never be a verbal order and there can never be any confusion. But you really have to change the system to develop safeguards, not just punish the individual person because then it's going to happen to another patient somewhere down the line. If you yeah, do that. you know, what I used to say, and I saw this a little bit in my internship, and that's why when I when I would teach medical residents in my career, I taught at Columbia, and, and now when I teach at Turo, you know, I, told, I tell people, which is really sad, like, as interns, I'll never forget, we were so afraid of what we didn't know. We were also kind of fearful of our attendings. I mean, some of them, you know, some of them were pretty nasty <laughs> and they would embarrass you. And that what that just did was drive people to hide mistakes. Exactly. Right. And, and I've always taught, I've tried to teach my residents. I try to, you know, teach the medical students and I teach my own staff. I tell them, I don't, will not get upset at you if you've made a mistake. I said, I'll get upset if you don't bring it to my attention, if we don't figure out a way how to prevent it from happening again and take care of what's going on. You know, but a lot of people, it's some of its ego, some of it's, you know, fear of being embarrassed or whatever. And this causes even bigger problems. And as you may have heard too, back in the day, you know, especially the surgeons, they used to have those, you know, mortality and morbidity conferences. They used to the famous M&M conferences where, you know, right. there was a death, but it was all kept in house, you know, and they would, I mean, nobody would supposedly criticize somebody outside of that room. And, but inside the room, I heard it could be hell. I unfortunately never attended. Yes. It, so it was mostly the surgeons, <laughs> but, but, you know, there could be a point to that. It's like, you know, sometimes keep things in house, and, and hopefully the system, again, will be more resilient. 
because I just can't see how, you know, bringing a nurse specifically up on criminal charges for a human error, which was kind of involved with the computer, you know, is going to make any doctor or nurse feel safer in doing their job. And, you know, again, wanting to help people that are, are the most in need of help. Right. Just makes people more scared. Right. Right. So uh, I don't know what the outcome of that is, but it it would be, I, I hope she didn't go to jail or anything. I don't, I don't no, know. she Did didn't you? go to jail, but, you know, obviously she, she, she lost did her lose, career. lost her license. She lost her license. Uh, you know, I mean, all these years, it's just, it's like you have to find somebody to blame. That's always, it's always after the fact, you know, and uh, anyway, it is what it is, but it's sad. Um, all right. The last article I'm going to ask you about is we're kind of going to wrap up a little bit. Uh, I actually tried to reach out to him, but I couldn't get him to come on the podcast yet. It was a <laughs> colleague of yours, Craig Spencer. Yes. And, right. I don't know if you know, you probably know Craig, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you wrote the story of the doctor who got Ebola. And, you know, I'll, again, here's another, here's another story where, you know, Craig, incredible person, goes over, you know, again, ER training. I think he's also like yourself has gone overseas and in a bunch of different situations to help out with his skill set, and he actually goes to Ebola uh, to uh, to um, Africa to help with Ebola patients, and he gets Ebola, you know, which is pretty much the most scariest thing, <laughs> scarier than COVID, uh, to to get. And uh, you know, and it was interesting too. Afterwards, he got a, a lot of flack because apparently. I don't know, he was having some fevers and he went on the subway to go bowling or something. And 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 I think also he was fortunate enough to get that, um, the antibody injection or something, whatever it was. So uh, again, what were you hoping to uh, portray in Craig's article? I wasn't actually able to get the, uh, download the article, I forgot why, but uh, what was uh, what was some of the interest in that? Yeah, just the public health guidelines and, isolation quarantine guidelines sort of went out the window in the setting of public fear. I mean, his wife had to isolate herself. They mm. did this sort of, I don't want to, they did this cleaning. Some company came over and cleaned, which really wasn't found in scientific data. Um, and I guess I just wanted to show what can happen to a society when panic sets in like that and we start to stray from scientific guidelines. And in the end, he didn't infect anybody. Right. right. I mean, he risked his own life to help others. And again, I just felt like, you know, it's like these people get persecuted when they could they could sit in the sideline and do nothing. And right. uh, it's just kind of not in our DNA. So it really goes back to the whole thing. I gave this whole introduction. Why? I guess I wanted to be part of the tribe. I, I, real, I mean, I guess it's how sometimes military people military people feel about other military people they just they can't sit idly by and you know i mean you know uh it just it shows you some weird things too how things shape your life I'll, I'll never forget i was like in my mid to late teens and i was at um at a temple on a on a holiday like a jewish holiday and you know i think it was around what they call yom kippur when people are fasting and so i was in temple and there was a man in front of me who fainted and passed out. And, you know, there was a little pandemonium going on. And because is there any doctors here? You know, so, you know, so I'm a kid and, you know, and I see there is a doctor there, you know, because I know him. He's a pediatrician. 
and he didn't move to go help the man. Now I'm looking back saying, well, you know, maybe he's a pediatrician. He doesn't really like taking care of adults. Right. But uh, so I, I gave him a little slack many years later, but I, I just remember at the time thinking, gosh, you know, how come he's not over there? And I always swore to myself that if I was lucky enough to become a doctor, I would hopefully take action. And I like to say that there's been a few times on airplanes I've been called to action. <laughs> I was a little bit disappointed when I first, when they bring the emergency box, and I yeah. see there's like just a little Benadryl and a stethoscope. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, what am I going to do? So now sometimes I travel with my own little ER kit. But uh, yeah, I think that's, you know, why a lot of us really go into it. And you would hope, and I, I think there is some appreciation from the public in general, but I think that, you know, there has to be, I, I sometimes think, unfortunately, too, I've always said this too, like, unfortunately, doctors are our own worst enemy. We never really banded together, never had the strength, like some unions, to get a lot of things done that I think would have been beneficial to everybody, not just the doctors. So yeah. I'm, just, I'm just espousing my, uh... <laughs> you see why I brought you on, just to kind of, I, I needed a doctor-doctor therapy here. <laughs> That's what one of my doctor friends used to say, that doctors should unionize like the nurses. I think they at, should have. I think yeah. they absolutely should. I mean, first of all, most of them now are, were, are, you know, employed by hospitals. They're not, they're not, you know, private owners. And uh, I don't know, you know, the, the insurance companies, the pharmaceutical companies, they push us around a lot, you know, and at the end of the day, you know, it's, you know, it's your relationship with your doctor that I think what most people really want, not their relationship with their insurance company or their drug company. Right. Anyway, I've had so much fun talking to you, Dr. Uyang. <laughs> um, I know you work at a great place. God forbid I'm ever sick. I'm heading to New York Presbyterian. <laughs> um, where can our listeners go to enjoy your writing and whatever you're working on next? I don't know, a book maybe. So fill us in. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I always post my work on my website, which is just my name, Helen, O-U-Y-A-N-G.com. And you'll see my latest work there. Okay. All right. Thanks so much for coming on. 